What do you think when I say performance anxiety? If you've ever had that feeling of, why do I always have to mess up when it counts? Or what is wrong with me? <laughs> then you know what I'm talking about, right? And, and somehow it seems self-reinforcing. You know, then it's like my legs are feeling like jelly or please don't mess this up. And then you just don't perform like you know you can, you know, like you do in training. Well, don't worry, this is Athlete Story and I'm your host Anya Bobia and I have brought in the UK Clinical Sports Psychologist of the Year 2017, Phil Johnson, to help us understand the psychological mechanics of things like performance, anxiety and blocks to performance. And he'll even let us in on one of the more recent techniques, it's a quite revolutionary technique actually, that he uses to help athletes and performers with those issues today. Welcome to the Athlete Story Podcast, your chance to tap into wisdom from athletes and experts in world-class sports. You are about to be taken into a chat about sports careers and related issues between an awesome guest and your listening host, the sports insider, repurposed Olympic mogul skier, and former freeride world tour athlete, Anya Bobia. This is Athlete Story and I'm your host, Anya Bobia. If you are a world-class athlete or simply into sports, I suggest you subscribe to my show right now because I will be posting a lot more athlete stories and chats with world-class sports experts and insiders like Phil Johnson. In fact, my talk with Phil Johnson turned into a whole sports psychology for athletes series with different topics that I can't wait to share with you. But it'll be one episode at a time, okay? For now, let's head on over to Phil's to learn how to break that vicious cycle of performance anxiety. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the show, Athlete Story. Thank you very much for inviting me. We have so many things to talk about, I think. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Can you start by just telling briefly what it is that you do? I'm known as a clinical sports psychologist as opposed to sports psychologist or clinical psychologist because I'm both. And 15 years ago, I moved out of working in mental health services in England, in particular in psychiatry, and working with families as a systemic family therapist into sport. I retrained. I became a football coach because that was my sport. I had a ski shop, so that was my sport. And I also had an equestrian centre. So I worked with horses and riders. So mental health and sport have been my life focus. I then eventually was able to qualify in both mental health psychology and sport and exercise psychology. So I deal with a lot of mental health issues in sport and performance environments. So I also work in performing arts with musicians, with actors, actresses, broadcasting, writers, and in business too. It, it all links up and I'm very systemic in the way that I work and continue to make discoveries and have worked with literally 2,000 people over the last 25 years. So I have this wealth of experience in 25 different sports, as well as in uh, music and acting and so on. I see athletes as people, and my philosophical approach is that you are a person first, and you simply happen to be talented in sport or in music or wherever it might be, so that I look at the total person. Whereas one of the issues of social identity is that you can identify solely with what it is that you're good at, which might be skiing or football. So that's what I do, that's how I approach it. If we start with the performance part, how do you help athletes who come to you and say, 
I'm kind of stalling. I don't quite get the results that I used to or I'm not quite there yet. I feel like there's something holding me back. The major reason that people come to me in the first place is performance anxiety. So the background tends to be what it is that you've just spoken about, is that people are losing performance or not creating a level of performance that they feel satisfied with and know that they're potentially capable of. It then starts to show itself in blocks to performance, of which performance anxiety is one of the most demonstrable of all of them. So people suddenly get worried hours, days, weeks even before a competition. So I begin to look at the blocks to performance. And the performance can be inside of sport or outside of sport. And over the years, I'd had the opportunity not just to train in psychology and social work and family work, but to teach exercise physiology and nutrition. And when I did that, it opened my eyes psychologically when I realized how totally interdependent our physiology and our thinking are. And so I developed a four corners model to assess and understand what happens to an individual in their context of their sport or their performance, but also as a human being. So the first part of the model is focused on performance because that's what people are interested in. Mm -hmm. And so we look at the technical elements of their particular sport because in psychology everything is about context. And so we, we're looking at the context of the sport, which also includes the culture and the language of their sport. And then we look at the tactical elements, the competitive nature of their sport. And within that I added communications. Communications with yourself and communications with your support team and so on and so forth. I like it that you have that one in there, but that's cool. <laughs> the second part is physical. If you think about it, if you don't sleep well, you lose energy. And if you lose energy, there is a direct relationship between your energy, your mood, the way you feel about yourself, your motivation to do things, and then ultimately your performance. So understanding that, I want to know about how people sleep or why they don't sleep properly. You know, in psychology, we talk about initial insomnia. In other words, what keeps you awake at night, thinking and overthinking about things. Why do people wake up early? Are they depressed? Are they anxious? What's happening in their dreams? Thank you, Freud. But I also want to know about, are you hydrated? If you do intensive exercise, do you, do you take electrolyte replacements? The number of professional athletes who don't know that is shocking. It really is bizarre. But that's one of the things that simply you can change affects your sleep. If you're dehydrated, you're going to wake up. The other ones are about pain, injury, illness. And so when you put all of those things together and you have a physical profile, it impacts on your psychological state, both emotionally and in the way that you think. Then I really discovered the crucial element of social relationships, and particularly in the performance environment. So here in Monaco, you know, I come across people like Jokovic and his team of support and the way that he trains and so on and so forth.
And that grouping of people are significantly influential in the way that you ultimately perform. In the same way that the book that I'm writing at the moment is called Supporting Athlete Parents, is that parents play such a significant role in the development of young athletes and performers. They're totally under-resourced and unsupported. So I'm looking to change that. And so our social relationships with our coaches, with our teachers, with our fellow teammates, with our physiotherapist or acupuncturist or whoever might be in our physical and emotional support team, include psychologists, our friends. And that's all gives rise to issues of social isolation, social withdrawal, and the issues that ultimately impact upon performance or performance impacts upon those behaviors. Only then do we begin to look at the psychological elements such as the concept of mental toughness which looks at our ability to perform under pressure, having robust self-belief, our ability to recover from setbacks whether they be in the moment or longer term and finally determination. If I repeat those four, you tell me which you think is the most important and dominant. The ability to perform under pressure, the ability to recover from setback, robust self-belief, determination. Which do you think is the most important? Robust self-belief. Determination. Because you can learn the other three. But determination seems to be that inbuilt characteristic. I said to you, just earlier, I said, I know how determined you are. And to do the sport that you did takes enormous determination. And so much of it is physical in nature, but it comes from the way that you think and the way that you feel about yourself and the goals that you set to achieve. It's that determination to reach those goals that actually helps you to succeed in the end. And in determination comes motivation. Mm -hmm. And with motivation, we have two definitions of what happens. Extrinsic motivation comes from the influence of the people outside of us. I call it the circle of influence. And you need to check in your circle of influence that you have the right people in it. Because if you don't, they actually drain your energy and they create negativity and can even disrupt your support team. When you're a younger person, I discovered that 75% of motivation is extrinsic. Parents, coaches, teachers, friends. You might do a sport, not because you really totally enjoy it, but because it's what your parents encourage you to do and you like watch it or you like your friends, whatever. But there's a transition point around the age of 15, 16, where you decide, this is what I want to do for myself you become more intrinsically motivated. And self-determination theory demonstrates that if you're not intrinsically motivated, you won't reach your goals. Mm -hmm. And many people are familiar with the SMART model of motivation and goal setting. Mm -hmm. Specific, measurable, achievable, realistic over time. The reason that they fail mostly is that the time scale isn't sufficient. But I added, I'm smart. Intrinsically motivated, smart goals. So it fits with the self-determination theory. 
that actually unless your goals are intrinsically motivated, it ain't going to happen. Mm -hmm. I also look at post-traumatic stress disorder. Let me just hold on to that determination okay. part. How does doubt come into the picture when you're talking to determination? Your viewpoint that belief is most significant at one level is also true. Our beliefs about ourselves are subconsciously driven, as is much of our behavior. And it's the doubt which creates the negative thinking that then links into a reduction in our motivation and can affect our determination. So in the approach that I use, building self-value feeds into that belief system about ourselves and other people. So that we, when we begin to doubt, we, we say things like, I can't do this. I won't win. I can never do that. I'm going to lose this. This guy's better than me. This woman just knows how to do this. I'm not going to do it. Whew. Think about the words. They're all blocking and they're limiting. Mm -hmm. So what happens in, when we lose performance is the development of limiting self-beliefs. And we find these not just in, in our sport and performance, but in our lives. And they're generated very early on in our lives. So one of the things that I speak about is that outside of our families, we just need one person, one person who believes in us as individuals and takes an interest. Often it's a teacher or a coach, not exclusively, but often. And if they do that, it's a life-changing moment. What happens when we lose performance is that the origins of that aren't necessarily about the context itself, but the performing under pressure, if there's an issue that we have, is showing our vulnerability. And that vulnerability often comes from life experience. When we remove those barriers to performance, not only do people feel better, but it allows them to reach a higher level of performance. And in that process, once we've removed those barriers to performance, we then need to build self-value. And as we build self-value and we feel better about ourselves, we're then able to look at the beliefs that we've developed over our lifetimes, whether it's 10, 15 or 40 years, that drive our behavior. So these limiting self-beliefs, I can't do this, even the language needs to be stopped. Mm -hmm. So instead of, I can't do this, it's possible I could. And as soon as you change the language, you create opportunity rather than impossibility. And the greatest example comes all the way from 1954 when Roger Bannister did the first ever sub four minute mile. Then what happened? Within three months, 30 other people did it. And so this is about climbing mountains. This is about doing what might seem impossible. I discovered that we can only begin to change our beliefs when our self-value lifts. Because until then, if I were to suggest that there's a belief that you have about yourself, which is, doesn't measure out in reality, you could be shocked. You could be so disappointed, you could be so angry because suddenly all these years you be be believe something about yourself or something or someone that isn't true. It's shocking. 
And then you become angry and you didn't know why before. And this is all subconsciously driven. It's not what we're consciously thinking. So when these things get resolved, the possibilities of enhancing performance are significantly higher. And I'm just thinking immediately of a trampolinist that I work with who hadn't won a competition for two and a half years and within six weeks won three golds, two silvers, a bronze and got himself into the national team. Eliminating a, a self-limiting belief. Ultimately, <laughs> from the injury history that he had, from the experiences that he had at school because he had dyslexia and so he found it difficult not only to, to write and to deal with numbers but express himself. And like many young people, when they struggle academically at school and discover sport or music or something and they're good at it, they feel so good that that's all they want to do. It's those beliefs about ourselves and how we limit ourselves to performance that actually causes so much angst in ourselves. All the more reason that we need to be a total person. So it's not just about the performance in your sport. It's about your social relationships. It's about your friendships. It's about collecting stamps or or sailing as a hobby so that you are not just about being a skier or being a footballer. Mm -hmm. But how does that angst, <laughs> as you say, how does that develop? Because you can have like four years, five years, everything is good and you're performing and then all of a sudden this comes up. Where does it come from? Okay, so for example, in that fifth year following four years of great success, you're still performing under pressure. But on this particular occasion, you feel vulnerable. Something's not working. You're not able to focus. You're not able to concentrate. You're distracted. Something goes wrong. You become immobilized. These are small traumatic experiences. And where do they come from? Well, when we identify those things, there are four characteristics. Hyperarousal, so that's high level of anxiety which is first and foremost physiological. It's not emotional. Our stomach is our second brain and the stomach picks up your sensory information from what's happening around you, along with your skin. It sends that information into the spinal cord and into the subcortical brain. I just happen to have one ah, here. Ah, nice. <laughs> and you can see that it's, it's got a line down the middle because it's split because the brain has two parts and they look identical but they're not. This is the brain stem mm -hmm. which is linked into your spinal cord for all this information from your stomach which actually comes into your brain half a second quicker than what it is that you see through your eyes and your visual cortex. It comes so the feedback from your stomach is faster than from your eyes? Yes and that's what we call gut feeling. Yeah. And it is really absolutely true. And so what we're picking up is the anxiety, is the worry. And it goes into this emotional center, the amygdala. But on the right-hand side of the brain, where it's predominantly dealing with emotionality and problem-solving, it goes up through the brainstem, and there is a direct link into the amygdala. Whereas on the left-hand side of the brain, it's going into other places before it comes back including the visual cortex mm -hmm. through what we see. 
when we're traumatized, our brain is literally separate. And this side doesn't talk to this side. And so that's what we call the blocks in performance, the way that our brains are actually working. And those feelings that we have are subconscious and come into the lower part of the brain. But we try to rationally analyze it in the top of our brain. And when we're constantly thinking rather than feeling, we become emotionally disconnected. Mm -hmm. I really hope that you're liking it so far. I just want to let you know that I've taken notes for you so you don't have to worry about that. If It is a mouthful and I know it is. But you can get those notes over at athletestory.com forward slash performance anxiety. That was it. Just wanted to let you know. Back to Phil. So when I was to track what was happening in the fifth year of your competition, it's likely that when we look at your history, there's something that will have happened earlier on in your life where you became very disappointed, embarrassed or humiliated. And that creates literally a physical trauma that your body remembers and your brain remembers. And if we were to remove that injury or that not winning a medal in that race and resolve it, and there's still an issue, we keep tracking it back. And ultimately we come into childhood. And even though psychoanalysts and Freud and everybody has talked about childhood, it is such a significant part of our lives. And we become imprinted with thoughts and feelings and beliefs early on. But indeed, our attachment to our parents is such a significant thing. And so when we look at injury, for example, and being separated from our coaches and our friends because we're injured, it, it becomes actually an attachment issue that we feel isolated and even rejected because of the situation that we find ourselves in. And these things subconsciously emerge to interfere with the performance in the moment, even though these events might have happened five weeks ago, 10, 10 years ago, or even 20 years ago. And they can be resolved. Sometimes it doesn't matter what people say to us, how, how positive they are towards us. If we don't feel it, it's not happening. That's why our own sense of ourselves, our own self-value is key ultimately to performance because self-value feeds into the beliefs that we have about our capability, about the way that we feel about ourselves, and our abilities to succeed in what it is that we set our minds to. So, in that fifth year, there would have been a nugget of something that was interfering with your ability to continue your performance, to sustain it. This is why having a systemic look at an individual helps me and them to understand themselves. And in the most fantastic motivational speech of all time, Al Pacino in Any Given Sunday's <laughs> football speech, he talks about game inches. And in performance and in life, and he says this too, making that one inch, those centimetres of change, when you put them together, they get bigger and bigger. And if you're in a team and each member of your team makes a small progression and you put it together, it gets bigger. And as he says, the inches are everywhere and they're in every step of the game, in football and in life. And I totally and utterly agree. But you know, you've got to be able to see them to know them. 
And if you have limiting self-beliefs, you stop yourself from seeing things. You stop yourself from feeling things. But at that moment in the fifth year of your performance, when something's gone wrong, it's likely that you were overtrained, that you were in the process of burning out. When we look at the, the characteristics of overtraining, 50% are physiological and 50% psychological. But when you're burnt out, they're 95% psychological. We're exhausted, but we're mentally exhausted. So one of the real issues behind the prevention of injury are rest, recovery, relaxation. Now, you've learned maybe how to relax, but when you're a professional athlete, do you really know how to stop, sit, be? When you're used to driving your body and focusing and being in the moment, it's really difficult. It's a real challenge for athletes to rest, recover, breathe. When Phelps won his eight gold medals, he actually said in this press conference, I'm sorry guys, I have to go. I have to eat 6,000 calories. I have to go to sleep and I have to recover for my next race. And that's one of the reasons he was so successful. And so when athletes seek help for loss of performance, that's why I do this, this assessment using these four corners. When we look at the physical and we start to ask those questions about sleep and energy and mood and pain and hydration and nutrition, then we start to see patterns emerging. Yeah, no, I do feel like that. Yeah, I've lost energy, I've lost motivation. I don't wanna to go to training so much. I feel this pain in my leg and it won't go away. And then there's the players that lose so much confidence, they feign injury. And they say to the physio, tell the coach that I'm still injured. I don't want to play. I'm frightened. Wow. In a sport that's your love and that's your passion and you don't want to play, what's happened? So it is complex, but we can discover the ultimate issues, where they come from. And when they do, they can get fixed. And yes, simply by finding that spot in your brain through remembering and connecting with the physical and emotional feelings, we can find an eye position or eye positions that relate to that specific memory. And then the two hemispheres of your brain automatically reconnect and reprocess that information and create new neural pathways. Your brain does all the work. There's no failure. It's not talking therapy and you're in control. It's fantastic. It's called brain spotting. Wow, I know that was a ton of information. So I'll, I'll leave you with that for this episode to not keep it too long. I know you're very curious to hear more about brain spotting and you will be able to in part two where Phil will go more in detail with brain spotting and how it can help you recover from injuries and remove performance anxiety, deal with other issues, preventing you from thriving in your sport and in life. So. Take care and stay tuned, okay?